And now, The Mentors, one of the most popular and unique shows on the radio today. Each week, one of our four remarkable CEOs, including Tom Lord, John Phillips, and Rick Brutico, will challenge your thinking about life and work. Sought after for their success and for consistently putting people first, treating employees and customers with respect, and helping others succeed, now these same CEOs, the mentors, want to help you achieve your highest level of profitability, success, and personal fulfillment in life, at work, and in business. Now, here's your mentor. Welcome. This is Tom Laurie, and my guest mentor today is UCLA professor Daniel M. T. Fessler. Dan works at the intersection of evolutionary anthropology, evolutionary psychology, and evolutionary medicine, and he's a pioneer in the field. Dan is the founding director of UCLA's Badari Kindness Institute, which makes him a perfect mentor as we discuss kindness a much-needed and appreciated skill in these chaotic and challenging times. Dan, welcome, and before we get started with today's topic, can you tell us first about the field of anthropology and what an anthropologist does and how that finds its way into adding to our, uh, well, I know it's used a lot in business, but maybe you can explain to people how it's used practically. Well, thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me, and um, I'd be happy to introduce your listeners to the field of anthropology. Um, it is a pretty remarkable field. It takes as its purview the study of human beings in all of their different dimensions, and uh, so that's everything from the way that culture shapes our perspective on the world, our values, um, and our understanding of one another, to... Um, aspects of human biology, how our bodies work, um, what makes us sick, and, and how we can be well. Uh, and so in some ways, it's kind of like a whole university within one field um, because there are many different kinds of anthropologists studying many different kinds of topics about human beings around the world. Uh, and it contributes, I would say, to any organization in terms of helping an organization to understand its own culture and how its uh, basic ideas and, and everyday practices shape the experience and values of its members, how organizations can be more effective, um, both in achieving their own goals and making a positive contribution to society, um, and uh, how uh, organizations can promote the welfare of their members and um, of others at large. Well, I know in my world, in the business world, uh, several times uh, in talking to various people that do market research, they actually take people with anthropology backgrounds and put them into a situation, maybe uh, where customers are or something, and they're there for quite a long time, and they're taking notes and figuring out how they're reacting things, and then that data is then translated back to what the needs are and the problems they're having with things. So I, I know the practical side from a business standpoint. It's always fascinated me. There's a, a firm up here called, in the Bay Area called IDO that does this on a routine basis. So what, what does it mean when you work at the intersection of evolutionary anthropology, evolutionary psychology, and evolutionary medicine? So all of those approaches um, have their 
starting point in um, uh, evolutionary theory as proposed by Darwin and developed over the century and a half since his initial ideas in which we understand the origins and nature of, of life on Earth, including of our own species, in terms of some basic processes of uh, natural selection. And um, then more recently, those same perspectives have been um, applied to understanding how cultures change as well. Evolutionary anthropology um, applies those ideas in uh, often in looking at um, fairly deep time depth, so looking at the entire history of our species and species that came before it, uh, and also applying those techniques and, and tools in understanding aspects, for example, of human biology today. Evolutionary psychology takes those um, uh, conceptual ideas and applies them to understanding how human minds operate, and um, evolutionary anthropology and evolutionary psychology share a focus often on um, on trying to understand contemporary human behavior. So how people in our society and in societies around the world make decisions, uh, pursue their goals, and so on. And then evolutionary medicine, which is a much more recent field, um, all of these fields are fairly recent, but evolutionary medicine is the youngest of the three, um, it uh, applies those same um, conceptual frames to understanding how our bodies work um, and uh, why we get sick, um, what our relationship is with the living world around us, um, including, for example, um, the emergence of novel diseases such as COVID-19, how those diseases evolve and um, how they affect human beings. So I'm a kind of a jack-of-all-trades, master of none. I have a I have a toe in each of those waters, and sometimes I find that there's cross-fertilization across the three approaches because they share this, this basic approach to understanding the living world. Well, fascinating stuff. Uh, now, I noted that some of your research domains included uh, emotions, disease avoidance, morality, pre-sociality, pre-social t- cooperation, conflict, aggression, risk-taking, food and eating, sex and reproduction. So during this extended period that we have uh, with COVID, and we're not even sure what extended means, I, I'm curious because of my own background in healthcare, what, what does the research tell us about disease avoidance? What is that all about? So uh, that is an area that I've worked um, for a number of years, and it's really a, uh, a growth industry in academia. And um, the, the basic idea is as follows. Um, you know, we have uh, uh, a long, long history of biomedical research understanding how um, the human immune system responds to the presence of disease organisms. Um, but it's only really within the last two decades that people have started looking more extensively at how um, human behavior and human emotional reactions um, play a part in the process of keeping us safe from diseases. So if you think, for example, about the emotion disgust, and I'm not using that term in the the context of moral or political um, evaluations, but rather 
what is sometimes called co- core disgust. Um, uh, think about, you know, what grosses you out. And um, the same things gross people out all around the world, um, things like feces and vomit um, uh, and so on. And those are things that over the course of our species history have always posed a threat of disease transmission, right? So uh, it very much seems like we have a a built-in psychological mechanism to protect us from disease, but um, it's not clear how well that works with regard to respiratory viruses like COVID-19. Well, we're going to come back in a few minutes and continue. I want to learn a little bit more about that, and then we'll talk about kindness. We're going to be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, founding director of UCLA's Benari Kindness Institute, Dan Fessler. Thank you for listening, and thank you for spreading the word about the Mentors Radio. Our podcast downloads have increased 500% since the beginning of the year. Make sure you tell your friends. You can go to our website, thementorsradio.com, and click on past shows to find many of our great past guests. This is Tom Laurie, and you're listening to the Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. I'm Tom Laurie, and we're with the founding director of UCLA's Badari Kindness Institute, UCLA professor Daniel M.T. Fessler, and we're talking about connecting with kindness in the era of COVID. Remember, you can listen to this show or any previous show via podcast and iTunes, TuneIn, Spotify, Google, and more on any device at any time. Subscribe at thementorsradio.com. So, Dan, in the, we were just talking about... Uh, the uh, disease avoidance. Can, maybe you could continue on that. I think you had a little bit more to share with us about that. That that is very interesting because of COVID. I don't. I, I know you said that we don't have a lot of uh, expertise yet with respiratory illnesses, but generally, what does that mean? Yeah. So as I was saying earlier, um, uh, humans around the world are disgusted by um, a variety of things that have been associated over deep evolutionary time with the risk of disease transmission. So things like feces, vomit, blood, other body products, right? And what does disgust motivate us to do? It motivates us to to stay away from those things, um, to, to clean ourselves if those things get on us, and in particular, it reduces our appetite and maybe even um, uh, uh, causes us to vomit, that is, to prevent um, ingestion via the mouth of, of those harmful substances, right? But um, uh, you'll notice that none of those things are invisible aerosols floating in the air after someone has, for example, coughed, right? And um, so one possibility, and we're really just learning about this now, is as people working in the field of evolutionary uh, health and evolutionary psychology start to explore it. One possibility is that um, our sort of innate disease avoidance um, mental mechanisms don't actually help us very much in, um, in the context of the current pandemic. And a reason for that um, is likely that, uh, that that's because diseases like this are relatively recent. And by relatively recent... I mean, on the order of within the last sort of 10,000 to 15,000 years, because um, obviously, as we see in in COVID, um, in, you know, densely populated urban areas around the world, for example, 
Um, diseases like this spread very rapidly in dense populations, uh, and it's likely that they simply didn't exist or didn't spread very much in more sparse populations in the past before agriculture. Uh, so we're sort of psychologically poorly prepared for um, for avoiding disease. If, if the person walking down the street who, who was an asymptomatic COVID patient had, you know, dog poop all over them, um, you would stay away from them. But because there's nothing that you can see or smell about them, they don't elicit that disease avoidance reaction from us. So we sort of have to train ourselves into recognizing that each of us potentially can transmit the disease to someone else and that people who look perfectly healthy um, may in fact pose a risk to um, vulnerable individuals in our society. Fascinating. So with COVID, you've got a whole new area of uh, research and understanding. I know you right now it's new, you're gaining, but I would would imagine uh, from an anthropologic standpoint, we're going to learn more about uh, how we're going to react to this disease over time because they're saying this is the first this is not the first uh sars it's not going to be the last either i mean it seems like this is uh fertile ground for research absolutely and and there's no question that that you know that sort of innate disease avoidance reaction can be modified so if you think about um uh, food taboos which are a common feature of religious traditions around the world um uh, a devout individual who inadvertently violates a food taboo may have a very strong disgust reaction, right? Um, uh, I, I've even seen people vomit when they discovered that they accidentally ate a food that is forbidden in their religion, right? Um, they have learned that association, um, uh, that, you know, um, uh, the, the, the prohibited food stuff is not inherently disgusting, so I think it's certainly possible for us to learn a similar association with regard to um, uh, indications that someone may be transmitting a, a, a respiratory disease. And uh, I think, you know, in addition to protecting each other and societies from, you know, massive pandemics of the kind that we're in right now, this can benefit us even on a more mundane basis because how many productive person hours are lost every year just to the common cold? Right? Um, how many times have you seen someone at, you know, in the lunchroom um, at your firm or, you know, at a buffet, at a, at a convention where they're, you know, coughing and sneezing and then and you say, how you doing? They say, oh, I got a terrible cold, right? They're not wearing a mask. They're not cleaning their hands before they, you know, help themselves from the buffet and so on, right? Um, uh, if they thought about the, the, the way that they're impacting other people, they're inflicting a cold on other people, and they're reducing the productivity of the organization in which they're participating, um, they wouldn't be doing those things. And it's not that they're selfish or inconsiderate. It's just that our culture prior to this pandemic saw it as completely acceptable to continue to participate in those events when one didn't feel well. And if we start to rethink it and say, well, actually, the altruistic thing for me to do here is to step back and say, well, I can't shake your hand. I'm not feeling well today. Um, I think I have a cold, or, you know, I'm going to stay away from the lunchroom today, um, or even, you know, guys, uh, I think it's better for me to work from home today because I'm a little under the weather. Then, um, you know, what is sometimes called presenteeism in, um, you know, in the workplace, that is showing up when you're not feeling well because you feel like you should be there, um, uh, will go down, and everyone's better off. No one likes having a cold. 
firms lose productivity, they lose money when their employees and their members are sick. Um, so there could be, you know, lasting repercussions that are positive even beyond severe illnesses like COVID-19. Boy, I'll tell you, you've got an academic feast <laughs> with COVID. There's so many other areas related to behavior change and cultural change and everything. It's fascinating. Thank you very much for sharing that with us. This is Tom Laurie. You're listening to The Mentors Radio. We're talking about the impact of kindness with UCLA kindness professor Daniel Fessler. Let's turn our attention now to kindness. Uh, this has been a tumultuous year. Uh, a lot of Social distancing, lockdowns, economic hardship, job loss, extreme anxiety and depression. What, what are the, from an anthropologic standpoint, what are the trends are you seeing and what worries you? Well, absolutely. This has been a, you know, it's been a challenging year for, for many, many people. And even if we hold aside the, the tragic loss of life and, and, and suffering that people have, have um, encountered just due to the disease directly, um, the ramifications, you know, across society have, have really made this a difficult time. And I think compounding that, both in the United States and around the world, there has been a move towards a very divisive political rhetoric and political movements that, um, that really demonize opposing groups. Um, uh, I think it's fair to say that we're in something of a kindness crisis right now, um, in the United States and around the world. Uh, and, um, you know, every crisis uh, contains the seed of an opportunity also. I think uh, there's quite a lot of work showing that, um, that uh, kindness, both at the level of individual actions and at the level of organizations and institutions, um, is, is good for everyone. It's good for the, the benefactor. It's good for the benefactee. And um, uh, the ripple spread through organizations. So the the challenge really is uh, for us to find ways to be kind, for us to find ways to bridge divides, uh, and to work together towards common goals. Well, let's talk about some of those ways when we come back in a few minutes. We're with our guest mentor, founding director of UCLA's Badari Kindness Institute, Daniel Fessler. Remember, you can now Listen to our broadcast live Saturdays on iHeartRadio or afterwards anywhere, anytime by subscribing to our podcast at TheMentorsRadio.com. This is Tom Laurie, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. I'm Tom Laurie, and we are with the founding director of UCLA's Badari Kindness Institute, UCLA professor Daniel M.T. Fessler. And we're talking about connecting with kindness in the era of COVID. Remember, you can hear us on the Salem Radio Network, Saturdays in California and Texas, and iHeartRadio everywhere else. And then online anytime at TheMentorsRadio.com or on any podcast platform. So when we uh, left the last segment, Dan, we were talking about acts of kindness. And we're in a kind of a terrible time here where the need for kindness has maybe never been greater in recent time. What are some of the uh, things that we can do to, uh, I mean, we're in a 
challenging time. Uh, what are some of the things that you recommend that people think about in acts of kindness today that would be meaningful? Well, uh, I think the first thing is to look inward and to consider one's own reactions to others. So certainly, you know, we could come up with a laundry list of things that you could do that would be kind, that would be helpful to others in, in this crisis um, that is enveloping the globe. And, and many people are doing those things, right? Things like, you know, um, uh, sending takeout meals to first responders and, and medical personnel, um, you know, sewing masks, um, uh, reaching out to, to uh, shut-in seniors, and so on. Uh, those are wonderful things to do, and I, I encourage everyone to think creatively about ways that they can uh, just engage in active acts of kindness. But fundamentally, I think the biggest changes, and in some ways the biggest challenges that we face, are in reflecting on our responses to others, okay? And um, in, you know, a highly heated and divided political atmosphere, um, kindness is, is easily lost. Uh, and, uh, in fact, the opposite of kindness, that is demonizing others who view the world differently, uh, is all too easy to fall into. Now, the problem with that is that um, uh, opposition between coalitions in any context simply promotes further opposition between those co coalitions. It, it doesn't, the emotions that underlie that kind of behavior don't promote um, searches for common ground, reconciliation, and um, positive relationships on an individual level. Now, this Thanksgiving, I think many Americans will not be sitting around a table um, with uh, extended family members the way that they usually would, but the chances are that um, many of our listeners are, are in communication with people who perhaps don't see the world the same way that they do. And I think that the fundamental thing that we need to remember, and this is going to be critical in the aftermath of the election, no matter, no matter who wins the presidential election in the United States, the most important thing to consider is the common humanity of, of, of everyone with whom you're interacting. And before you respond to, uh, to an opposing point of view or a, a difference in priorities or even what appears to be some differences in values, if you pause and ask yourself, why am I responding this way, um, when I start to see that other person is less than human, when I start to... Um, to denigrate them in my own mind, even if I'm polite enough not to say anything, right? Am I contributing to the problem or am I contributing to the solution? So starting with the common humanity, starting with the, the assumption that, um, that people who see the world a, a different way are not necessarily bad people and that common ground can be found, I think is the very first step to finding kindness in our relationships. This is Tom Laurie. You're listening to the Mentors Radio Show. We're talking about the impact of kindness with UCLA kindness professor Daniel M.T. Fessler. So you, you brought up something for me. I, I have done a lot of work in Washington, obviously one of the um, tough places to work these days. Uh, it had an issue to do with health care. And there was one congressman in particular who actually was a committee chair that um, – wouldn't listen. I mean, he was very difficult to deal with. 
And uh, I'm an Irish Catholic kid from Chicago, so I decided uh, what I would do is I would pray for him, and I did, and I sent him a note, and I told him I was praying for him. Uh, it was fascinating how he responded to that. Uh, I mean, that's just something out of the blue that I thought of as you were talking. Yeah, I mean, the you know, why would someone respond positively to that? Well, because you are showing that beyond the difference of opinion that you have about the issue at hand, you're concerned about someone else's welfare, and you're thinking about them as a as a full and three-dimensional human being, and not simply as, you know, someone to be opposed or persuaded, right? Um, because ultimately it is those kinds of, of richer relationships that allow us to find the common ground where, 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 where compromise and common solutions uh, are possible. And ultimately, that really is a critical uh, feature of solving problems, whether those are problems within an organization or problems on the political landscape writ large, right? Um, one interesting feature about our species is how incredibly altruistic and cooperative we are, right? No, no other living thing on the planet cooperates with unrelated individuals on the scales and to the extent that, that human beings do, right? We're really unique in that. But the kind of dark side of that is that one of the things that has led to that feature in our species is warfare and conflict between groups. Because the group that was really well organized internally always did better in conflict with an, with, with an opponent that was more poorly organized. And in fact, President Ronald Reagan understood this fully. He understood how the presence of an outside threat leads people to, to come together. And he said, look, well, you know, we'll have peace on Earth when there's an alien threat, right, from another species, because then we will see our common humanity. Then we will unite with each other. Well, I mean, the pandemic is such an outside threat. Um, climate change is such an outside threat. Um, when we start to see ourselves as um, fellow passengers in a lifeboat, where we really need to find common ground and cooperate with each other if we're going to keep that boat afloat, um, then we are much better off than when we see ourselves in a, in a zero-sum competition where it's winner-take-all. And kindness, acts of kindness are multipliers, aren't they? Absolutely. Um, uh, kindness is contagious. And, in fact, my own research group has demonstrated this um, with real money on the table experiments where um, showing somebody acts of kindness by an unknown stranger that doesn't involve them, they're not being benefited, they're simply witnessing this. This inspires people to be more generous and more altruistic themselves. Uh, and the consequence of this is that each of your actions of kindness don't just benefit your beneficiary, they benefit many people that you will never interact with because that will extend outward and ripple forward in relationships that, that you're completely unaware of. Well, we're going to come back and talk some more about kindness with uh, the director of UCLA's Badari Kindness Institute, Dan Fessler. Remember, you can now listen to our broadcasts uh, on the iHeartRadio. We're going to be back in a few minutes. This is Tom Laurie, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now... 
Back to the Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. I'm Tom Laurie, and we are with the founding director of UCLA's Badari Kindness Institute, Professor Daniel M.T. Fessler, and we're talking about connecting with kindness in the era of COVID. I want to go back to a couple of the practical things uh, that I've read. Some of the had to do with an interview with you. So we're in this era. It's fascinating uh, with masks. Um, you can't see the expression on another person's face. Uh, which I, I find I'm at a loss now because I'm so used to looking at people and seeing the expression. And, and as you know, if you smile, generally they'll smile back. What are, and I think there's some suggestions on things we can do when we're wearing masks that are little tiny acts of kindness, but meaningful. Yeah, well, you know, facial communication is extremely important in human beings. We are very attuned to faces um, uh, very soon after birth, infants will orient to faces as opposed to other stimuli, and we get a lot of information about someone's emotional state and their intentions from their faces. And so, um, you know, losing essentially half of that um, uh, source of information or more because the mouth is so expressive is, of course, a barrier to effective communication and to the understanding of others' reactions and thus of their perspectives that, that is necessary in, um, in cooperation and finding common ground. So I think, uh, you know, we can think creatively about how to address that challenge. Um, uh, certainly humans, you know, uh, are very good at coming up with new communication systems. You can think about how we can speak to each other right now and, and not see each other and not be disoriented by the fact that we can't see each other. Um, we think about texts and emails and the, the way that people have come up with things like emojis and emoticons in order to add emotional valence. In terms of masks, I think uh, more overt gestures, right? The head nod, the, you know, the smiling eyes where you crinkle around your eyes, the, the hand to the heart as a gesture of appreciation or affection, um, these, these uh, sort of um, more flamboyant gestures, which we wouldn't normally use if we could see one another's faces, um, can become effective in this context because we're losing some of that information channel. And, and they can become normal and, and everyday very, very quickly. Uh, just think about, for example, the ease with which a traveler or an immigrant quickly adopts the greeting rituals that are common in another culture, right? And, you know, so, um, well, do you shake hands? Do you bump fists? Do you kiss each other on each cheek? Do you hug? Um, those are, you know, greeting rituals are very different from one place to another, but we are flexible and we quickly learn those new forms of behavior. I think people can think creatively about, about how we can do that in the context of mask wearing. And as I said, just more overt gestures will help. Yeah, I saw a, I think it was in an article you were involved in, uh, we have all these home deliveries now. It's amazing how many trucks go through my neighborhood in a day. And somebody uh, recommended she leave a sign on the door for those that deliver, just thank you for thanking them for the delivery, something small like that. Uh, I, I also know that uh, somebody 
I picked up on something else and I went into Costco and you got the mask on, I'm checking out and I thanked the people at the cash register and loading the cart uh, for being on the front lines and putting themselves at risk. And the response I got was incredible. You know, there's quite a bit of research showing that, um, that these, what you can think of as mundane everyday acts of kindness in, in fleeting social interactions, right? You, you don't know the cashier at Costco, um, you, you may not interact with that person again in the future, but those very simple, mundane um, gestures of goodwill and indications that you care about the other person, those have considerable impact on the emotional well-being of both the giver and the receiver in that situation. People feel good about being asked sincerely how their day is going, um, uh, 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 you know, making some, you know, pleasant small talk that reveals that this is not just a transactional interaction. I, you know, it's not just I give you the money and you give me, you know, the, the, the piles of paper towels or, or whatever it is from, from Costco, but instead I'm recognizing you as a person. Uh, and, and we can do that even when we can't interact directly with people, like the sign on the door for the delivery person, right? That, um, that gesture of appreciation can go a long way. And, of course, that's not to say that, that more um, tangible signs of appreciation, the kind of compensation that a firm offers to uh, its members, right, the kind of tip that you leave, a service person who is assisting you uh, or delivering to your home, right? Obviously, those tangible contributions are important, and for many people, that's especially so given the economic challenges we're facing right now. Um, but when it comes to uh, emotional and social well-being, money is no substitute. Um, those things are complements to each other, right? So the positive gesture, the gesture showing true appreciation, um, uh, uh you know, fills the, the heart just as the, the tip helps to fill the stomach, as it were. And this is a, I mean, it's not a transaction. I mean, if we when we do acts of kindness, we certainly impact the person who we're interacting with, but it has a big impact on us as well, right? Absolutely. Um, as I've said over and over, um, uh, being kind to others isn't just good for the others, it's good for ourselves as well. Uh, and, and, you know, listeners can reflect on a time when um, they spontaneously and without calculation to their own benefit um, uh, engaged in some act of kindness or generosity towards someone, uh, especially towards a stranger. And they can think about how they felt in that moment and afterwards. And, and I think most people will agree that they felt uplifted um, they felt optimistic. Um, it is a rewarding experience to to help others. Um, and uh, I think there's nothing wrong with us recognizing that that is an intrinsic part of human nature and that helping others is not just a moral imperative, but it is part of who we are as people. As I said, human beings are just vastly more altruistic and cooperative than any other species on the planet. And our emotional reward system includes the motivations for that kind of behavior. Now, I, I know that 12-step uh, programs, the doing uh, something for others is a big part of the healing process. And uh, But I want to go to, um, very quickly, we're going to run out of time here in the segment, I want to go a little bit to the uh, play to your strengths and what, what you mean by that. 
Well, um, all of us are different. We all have different abilities and um, uh, different limitations. And I think finding ways that you can connect and make a positive difference in someone else's life importantly means, again, thinking about yourself and thinking about what, what resources in the, in the personal sense, not in the material sense, you have to offer others. And everyone's different, so the way that you express yourself and the way that you help others may be very different from uh, other people in your family or in your social network or in your organization. Um, but but people can recognize when you are uh, well-intentioned and seeking to help. And it's really the thought that counts, right? Absolutely. I think it is the intention that is the heart of kindness. Um, just providing benefits by itself is not kind, right? So um, we can think about, uh, you know, the, the, the manipulative individual who helps others in order to get something in return. No one would call that kind. It is treating others as an end in themselves and not a means to an end that is the key to kindness. Well, we're going to be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, founding director of UCLA's Badari Kindness Institute, uh, Daniel Fessler. You'll find all of our show notes and links at thementorradio.com. When you're there, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any of our shows. This is Tom Laurie, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. I'm Tom Laurie, and we are with the founding director of UCLA's Badari Kindness Institute, Professor Daniel Fessler, and we're talking about connecting with kindness in the era of COVID. So this is the last segment. We don't have a lot of time, but one of the questions I'd uh, like you to answer is, who is Badari, and how did this institute get created? So the Badari Foundation is a private family foundation started by Matthew and Jennifer Harris. Uh, uh, Matthew Harris is a successful businessman working in the fields of investment in a variety of different uh, sectors. And the Harrises uh, set up the Badari Foundation to help to realize their personal vision about um, making change in the world. They work importantly in the area of uh, environmental conservation. And um, they really saw, I think, a need for um, academic research to focus on the topic of kindness and barriers to kindness and to focus on translating that um, uh, greater understanding into practice and education in the world. So we're a new organization. We just turned one year old. And um, housed at UCLA, as you said, we have a, a wide variety of different professors at UCLA with very different expertises everyone from folks in the business school to folks in the medical school, people in anthropology, um, uh, people in, in, in statistics, the entire campus. And that's because this is really a multifaceted topic. And so to understand the things that promote kindness and the things that are barriers to kindness, the way that kindness makes our lives better and the way that kindness makes us healthier and makes for a better society, this is... This is a monumental undertaking, um, and uh, we're you know really fortunate to to be the beneficiaries of the Harris's generosity in making a twenty million dollar donation to establish this institute. And as I said earlier, kindness is contagious, right? Witnessing acts of kindness 
um, inspires others to be kind. And in the short life of our organization, we've already experienced this because um, uh, after the announcement of the Harris's somewhat uh, breathtaking generosity, uh, a previously unfamiliar donor, uh, not part of the UCLA family of philanthropy, came forward and, and, and um, provided another $1 million in addition. And we've received small money donations from other individuals of, of you know, lesser resources since then. Uh, and each of these individuals have simply been inspired by the Harris's vision and their generosity and the goals that we have as an organization. So, so even within our own, um, uh, our own context, we're seeing contagious kindness. So the um, two we got two questions. We got about a minute and a half left. One question is, how does forgiveness play into kindness? It probably takes an hour to talk about that, but <laughs> forgiveness is critical because you know the way our minds work. As long as we see one another as in opposition, as long as um, uh, someone has um, has hurt us in some fashion, and we focus on that. Um, then we we will not achieve common ground. We will not achieve reconciliation, and ultimately we will not achieve peace. And by peace, I don't just mean lack of conflict between the parties. I mean peace in our personal lives, peace of mind. So um, finding it in oneself to forgive someone who has harmed, and there are of course you know uh, extraordinary and breathtaking examples throughout history of people who have achieved remarkable forgiveness towards those who have grievously hurt those and, and whom they care about. Um, finding this in ourselves, really, I think, is the first path to, to, to healing some of the divides we confront. So we got 30 seconds. Last question. <clears throat> of all the people you've met and dealt with your, your lifetime, who, what is the thread uh, that connects all those people with God's I think the for for me the thread has always been those who who take an optimistic view, try and find um, the good and the potential in others, and try and help other people to achieve their potential. That kind of generosity has played an enormous role in my own life. I am the beneficiary of that. I wouldn't be where I am without um, mentors who have assisted me along the way, and um, I think it is really really critical in terms of of building a kinder world to be able to see the potential in others and the common humanity. Hey, thank you, Dan. This has really been uh, enjoyable. I really appreciate you taking the time to spend with us to talk about kindness. We've been talking to founding director of UCLA's Badari Kindness Institute, UCLA professor Daniel Fessler, and we've been talking about connecting with kindness in the era of COVID. Learn more about this and other shows by going to our website. When you're there, make it easy for yourself and subscribe to future shows. Remember, too, you can also listen to us online, any device, anytime at thementorsradio.com or any podcast platform. Join us next week at the same time for the next edition of The Mentors Radio. Until then, this is Tom Laurie signing off for today. Remember to be all that you can be and keep the candle lit for all who struggle in the darkness. It's been The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. To get more information about the program or a sponsor, to download a podcast of today's show, or to leave a question for our host, go to TheMentorsRadio.com. That's www.TheMentorsRadio.com. The preceding program, copyright CBJ, LLC. All rights reserved.